Welcome to Defend the Faith Live. Defend the Faith Live is a Perusia podcast series where we join Dr. Robert Haddad to take a look at a chapter a month of Defend the Faith, Dr. Haddad's excellent book on Catholic apologetics with host Matthew Herman Tague. In this episode, we cover Original Sin. Defend the Faith Live is recorded online with a live audience in Perusia World. To be part of the live online audience during these recordings and to interact in the live member-only Q&A sessions that follow, please join us in Perusia World by visiting perusiamedia.com and clicking on Perusia World for all the information on how to join. Perusia Podcast is produced in partnership with EWTN Asia Pacific and Voice of Charity Radio Australia. Dr. Robert Haddad, welcome back to Perusia World. How are you today? Very good, thanks, Matthew. Great to be back. Yes, yes, I've uh, certainly been looking forward to to talking with you once again to do Defend the Faith Live, and this is now our our third episode. Uh, So it's great to be here with you. Likewise, I'm still very excited about this project and, and happy to do today's topic. Indeed, yes. And speaking of, today's topic is a very important one because we are going to be talking about original sin. And so I guess the very first question we should ask you, Dr. Haddad, is what is original sin? Well, there's the answer to that question is, is twofold. Original sin is firstly an event that we read about in the book of Genesis. The original sin is the first sin committed by our original parents, Adam and Eve. And essentially, it was a a sin of disobedience born out of pride. Uh, They fell for the temptation, the temptation of the serpent that entered into the garden, the temptation that if you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall become like God in knowledge, knowing good and evil. And um, that temptation inflamed their pride. And Adam through Eve, both of them, uh, ate of the forbidden fruit of the of tree of good of, of tree of knowledge, and um, and that was the sin of disobedience. So that's the first definition of original sin, the the first sin committed by our parents, willful disobedience uh, born out of pride. Original sin is also something that we have inherited, that we've contracted through natural generation. Um, It's not um, Catholicism, unlike some of the Protestant strains like Calvinism, what we inherit is not the guilt of the sin, we inherit the consequences of the sin. So we inherit um, a wounded human nature. Um, I think we do need to have a look at the consequences in more detail, but we are all afflicted through natural generation. We inherit this weakened or damaged human nature, um, which leaves us prone to our own actual sin. I see. Okay. So as you've said in the book, when someone says, why should we be punished for the alleged sins of others committed a long time ago? We're not, it's not the guilt that we're inheriting. It's the, it's the, the act of the sin. What, what exactly is it that we're inheriting? Okay. Um, the, the question that you raised, the accusation has, is not an issue for Catholicism because Catholicism does not teach that we are being punished for someone else's sin. Catholicism does not teach that we are inheriting or being imputed with the guilt of someone else's sin. Our sense of justice revolts against those two concepts, and rightfully so. That's It's more of a problem for Calvinism than Catholicism, uh, uh, to justify it, their position, its position with respect to original sin. What we believe is that Adam and Eve were endowed with certain gifts, supernatural and preternatural gifts. I'll outline them now. The supernatural gift was sanctifying grace, um, a creative participation in God's own divine nature uh, that elevated our nature uh, 
to a super nature and gave us a participation in God's nature. And it was a pre, it's a prelude to heavenly glory. Uh, we also had preternatural, or sorry, the other part of, uh, of sanctifying grace was uncreated grace. We had the life of God dwelling in our souls. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit actually lived in our souls. So that was the life of grace. And that, that's, a, that's a gift. We had no right to that. Uh, it wasn't part of our nature as such, but super added to us uh, gratuitously by God. We also had preternatural gifts. And what does that term preter mean? It's a Greek word that means beyond. Gifts that extended us beyond our nature, that innate were given to us to perfect our lives of happiness on earth. So these gifts were fourfold. We had infused knowledge so we could have an understanding of the nature of all created things around us. Um, that's what Adam and Eve had originally, and they would pass on that knowledge easily to their children. We had um, integrity, which was the gift of that uh, made our passions, appetites, and desires subject to reason. So there was no tension between the flesh and the spirit as we experience now. We also had another gift called impassibility, which was freedom from pain, sickness, suffering. And we had another gift called immortality, freedom from decrepitude and death. So in God's original plan, we were meant to be living in paradise and happily so. And after a certain time, when we reach a certain level of grace, we would simply be translated or assume body and soul into heavenly glory uh, the, to have the beatitude of God, the very possessing the life of God face to face in heaven. When we sinned, the original sin, when Adam and Eve committed that first sin, which they only were personally guilty of, they lost those gifts, all those gifts, the supernatural and preternatural gifts for themselves. They bankrupted their own human nature. And as a consequence, they could only pass on through natural generation a bankrupted or wounded human nature to their children. So we're born without these, we're conceived and born without these, this supernatural and these preternatural gifts. There are other punishments that flowed too because of original sin. Mm -hmm. um, the worst of all was the privation of heaven. Because we lost sanctifying grace, we lost the ability to get to heaven. The gates of heaven were closed, so to speak. We couldn't, uh, without sanctifying grace, we can't be in heaven. We can't possess God's life. We can't see him face to face. We also cast out of paradise and we had to earn our keep by the sweat of our brow, the law of labor. Uh, women had the specific uh, punishment of, of pain in childbirth. And of course, because we lost impassibility and immortality we would die yeah. we'll die in our bodies so there was a double death because of original sin the, the the death of the spiritual life in ourselves to the loss of sanctifying grace and uncreated grace and also the death of the body we were dust and unto dust we shall return uh, these were grave consequences for adam and eve and for all their children and for us today and because we lost integrity, we have this tension within us, uh, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. We, we lost infused knowledge. There was ignorance in the, in the intellect and also malice in the will developed. So our will was no longer directed towards loving God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves easily, but it had it become inverted, uh, imploded. So we love ourselves above all things. And because of these wounds and these disorders that opened up within us, uh, the life of, of holiness and integrity was much more difficult um, and nay impossible because our, the proneness to sin was now so easy that we would be children of sin, regular sin. And our bodily appetites would make us crave for activities which are inherently sinful etc mm. okay so it's more correct to say that we we have inherited the consequences of original sin and not the not the guilt and so all of those original gifts uh that which adam and eve have lost you said in their nature so that they then can't pass on that nature 
Yeah, they lost it in their human nature. Um, But we still have to remember, and there's a subtle distinction here, that all these gifts, supernatural and preternatural, were super added to our nature. They weren't natural to us. So we weren't wounded um, in something that was natural to us, but we were stripped of gifts that made our human nature, in a sense, wounded or vulnerable and prone to sin. I see. I see. Prone I, I to disorders the, and yes. Yeah, and sin. I, I guess the the, um, the 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 skeptic or the objectioner uh, might still say, "Well, well, that still doesn't seem fair, does it?" Well, here's an analogy. All right, mm. say I'm your father. Okay. Mm. Yes. All right, and I'm a billionaire. Yep. Right. Well, I've got these wonderful gifts, okay? They're material, they're natural, it's monetary. And with all this wealth, I will have a wonderful life and so should my children. Mm -hmm. But what if one day I go to the casino and I just splurge it and blow it all in one night on the pokies or the roulette wheel or blackjack or whatever, Mm -hmm. and I come home bankrupt. I've bankrupted myself. I'm Mm -hmm. now living in poverty. But the consequences of my sin also flow to you. You also will be living in poverty. That makes a lot of sense. Thank yeah. you. So what? Yes, yeah, so our original parents bankrupted themselves of these uh, supernatural and preternatural gifts, left us bankrupted as well. I see. Uh, and of course, you already mentioned that there were sort of other consequences. Um, we were going to um, sweat and toil. We were going to die. Um, and that women specifically would uh, would suffer pain in childbirth. Now, there's there's uh, a bit of a, a question over whether or not um, Eve had would have had any pain in childbirth before the fall. Uh, some have suggested that there would be some discomfort or natural pain and that the pain has been increased, while others would say, no, she would have had no pain at all, just like the Blessed Mother. Uh, do you fall down on a particular side of that argument? Well, I haven't thought of it overly, but if we were free from pain because of the gift of immortality, then one could surmise that Eve and all women were originally meant not to suffer pain in childbirth. But even if we retained the preternatural gifts, if there was no original sin, the, the children born to Adam and Eve, to Eve and all women subsequently, those deliveries would have been natural. But not miraculous like the delivery of the Christ child from the Virgin Mary. The delivery of Christ from Mary's womb was miraculous in the sense that it didn't break her hymen, it didn't infringe her virginity. While naturally Eve and other women, even if we had retained all the gifts, uh, naturally their virginity would have been lost through you know, natural sexual intercourse and the delivery of children. Mm. Okay, so I have to make that distinction. But I would have to say that I tend to fall on the side of no pain for women in childbirth. And perhaps it would have been an experience that would have been, of course, giving birth is joyful. Okay, but you know, all women are very happy to give birth to healthy, happy, healthy children, etc. And it's a great blessing. And it would have been more an, an act where there was, you know, a joy, there would have been joy in it rather than pain and suffering. Okay. And that's because of this um, super abundant gift of impossibility, yes? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a preternatural gift and it's, yeah, impassibility, freedom from pain. And that we lost that and now we're subject yeah. to pain. Okay. Well, so I've got to ask. Um, before the fall, could Adam have stubbed his toe? Yes. He and could have he stubbed his toe. Um, well, interesting question. And again, <laughs> at this moment, I'll side on the point of um, no. Very good. Thank All you. Right. Very now, much. of course, of course, then we could he have died? Well, mm. Jesus was conceived and born with a human nature that was. Um, not wounded by original sin. That was the whole point of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the one point of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Jesus would not inherit any of the consequences of original sin, but Jesus was still put to death and still felt pain, Mm. okay? Um, 
and he still felt hunger and he was still tired. So I, I, I'm in the realm here of speculation. Of course. But, I mean, Adam and Eve still needed to eat. Um, mm -hmm. They still would have felt hunger pains if they didn't eat. Okay. And they, I imagine they could have still have been killed if they ex attacked, ex ex attacked externally. And, you know, if someone shot a bullet at them or someone drove a knife through them, they could have, in the same way Christ died. Okay, so I can't be so certain about no pain if they stub their toe. But I'll just say this. Um, pain also has the benefit of being a warning for us. It's something is, is not right. Something wrong is happening. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... Maybe there was pain, but pain in the sense of, of a, a warning system rather than something chronic and debilitating. Yeah, it's, it's truly a fascinating subject. And uh, yeah. a lot of the, the, the different uh, debates on these things are absolutely um, fascinating. Mm. Uh, so where do we learn about original sin in scripture? Well, I can, there, is, there are various passages. And I have to say this, it's important to, continue to believe in original sin to teach it because we live in a society a culture today that doesn't believe it mm. um and we, there are so many in the church many people i encounter in different parts of the church who never refer to it and in, by implication don't believe in it it's for them it's more in the realm of a of a myth in a legend in the legend of adam and eve and the story in the book of genesis and they don't really take it seriously and we'll come to various heresies about original sin soon enough um, but i remember when i used to work for cardinal pell he used to say well um, if you don't believe in original sin we certainly have plenty of evidence for it in the world today and, and when we look at the world today and we look at you know, so much sin, so much chaos, so much disorder, so much disorder within ourselves, our own disordered appetites, our own disordered inclinations, our envy, our anger, our pride, our lust, our murder. There's something inherently within us that leads us, drags us towards sinful activity. Um, so anyway, but the question related to scripture. So I'll, I'll read out to you four verses, one Old Testament and a, three New Testament ones. And the first one is from the Psalm, Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So I, prima facie, at first instance, this looks like a passage that tells us, hey, you know, we're conceived in sin and we're, we're, we're born in iniquity. And um, well, that doesn't say original sin, but it certainly speaks of what we conceived and born in, in original sin. Then we have St. Paul, letter to the Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, so this is historical, one man brought sin into the world, and Paul here is referring to Adam, and death through sin. So Paul makes it clear that death came into the world through sin. So God's original plan for humanity is that there wouldn't be death. Death only came into the world because of human revolt. And what, what is that revolt? That initial sin, okay? And so death spread to all men because all men sin. Okay, now, death spread to all men. Yes, because we all are one family, we're all children of Adam, we all inherit a wounded human nature, one that is no longer protected by the preternatural gifts of impassibility and immortality. So we will, like our original father, Adam, we would die. And all men have sinned. Well, yes, since Adam, we are, are all sinners. There's no exception. If there are exceptions, it's because God has intervened to make exceptions and we, the church teaches that is the case with the Virgin Mary and Christ, of course. Mm -hmm. Then the next verse is St. Paul again, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. For as one man, for as by a man came death, and by a man has come also a resurrection of the dead. 
for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So again, St. Paul is emphasizing that death came into the world through one man, namely Adam. And we have a new Adam in Christ. So Christ comes into the world, and this is important here. We, there's no point about Christ and his cross unless we believe in original sin. If you don't believe in the first Adam, in the original sin, then what's the point of Christ, the new Adam, and the new tree of life on Mount Calvary? If, if Jesus isn't coming into the world with the specific mission of undoing the damage caused by an, a, an original sin caused by a first Adam, then Jesus is just a fool on the hill. Hmm. Why is he on the hill? That is Mount Calvary on the cross, unless he's atoning for an original sin. And Christ, uh, being the new Adam, is going to be reversing the effects of the original Adam, that is, conquering the conquering death that came into the world through Adam's disobedience. Christ's obedience will open the road to reconciliation with the Father, the life of grace, uh, the life of resurrection, the glorified body, and the conquest of death. And then finally, we have St. Paul again, Ephesians 2, 3. Among these, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That is, we were once all pagans. Following the desires of the body and mind, that is, wayward appetites, disordered emotions, appetites, etc. And so we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is, by nature, by the way of our life, our lives, the way they were so natural, so disordered that sin was just natural to us, every day to us, that we were children of wrath, that is, children deserving of condemnation, because we were just naturally, that is, living lives of sin as our normative way of life. Yeah. And of course, those uh, four scripture quotes are in the book that we're both referring to, uh, written by yourself, Defend the faith yeah thank you <laughs> we should uh we should probably now talk about some of those um misunderstandings of this doctrine of original sin you've already uh, alluded to the fact that there's there's even people in the in the catholic church who who don't believe that it was an actual sin committed by you know our original parents adam and eve and so that's that that's a pretty big heresy right there isn't it robert i mean we are required to believe that adam and eve were actual people aren't we well look um this was a big issue in my own teaching life and career especially in the early to mid 90s um where i was teaching at the time i had pretty much free reign and i'll be teaching about adam and eve etc etc and some of the students in high school would tell me hey but sir we were told in primary school that adam and eve didn't exist just a myth etc that's everywhere today and I seized on the Catechism of the Catholic Church at that time, which had come out in 1992 and the English version in 1994. And I said, well, look, I'm not teaching something old-fashioned here that's now been superseded or overturned. I'm, I'm referring to the Catechism. And you can go to the paragraphs roughly from uh, paragraph 380 through to 404, 405. And it's the Catechism itself that tells us about where original sin came from. I, I believe if you want to turn to the passages there on page 29. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to read them. So we're in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 403 and 404. Following St. Paul, the church has always taught that the overwhelming misery which oppresses men and their inclination toward evil and death cannot be understood apart from their connection with Adam's sin. And the fact that he has transmitted to us a sin with which we are all born and afflicted, a sin which is the death of a soul. How did the sin of Adam become the sin of his descendants? It is a sin which will be transmitted by propagation to all mankind, that is, by the transmission of a human nature deprived of original holiness and justice. And that is why original sin is called sin only in an analogical sense. It is a sin contracted and not committed, a state and not an act. So it does seem very clear that, uh, you know, we get this original sin from our original parents. If it's by propagation, 
and we have it, that means that we must all be related to Adam, surely. Well, that, that's correct. Now, those yeah. two paragraphs sum up everything we've been saying so far. Exactly. There's another paragraph that says that the original sin is an event that pertains to history. There's nowhere in the catechism which says that Adam and Eve uh, is just a story, a myth. There's no original sin, etc. Now, later on, I'd like to come to an issue called polygenism. All right, we'll revisit this question. Um, one point we have to hold very firmly here, dogmatically, is that we're one human family, all descendants of original parents, namely Adam and Eve. Uh, and that, that, that guarantees the unity of the human family and the fact that, that we, all, we all inherit the same consequences of original sin and that Jesus comes as a saviour for the whole of humanity, not just for the whites or the blacks or the Anglos or the Arabs, but for all. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that is what we need to hold on to and teach steadfastly. Otherwise, everything falls apart. If we take away belief in Adam and Eve and original sin, as I said earlier, what's Christ doing on the cross? We're just pulling away the foundation stone of our entire faith. Everything collapses. It becomes pointless. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, so I would like now to, to get on to some other misunderstandings about original sin. You've already mentioned polygenism that we will uh, get to very shortly. Uh, but first, I'd like you to tell us all about a monk named Pelagius. Pelagius was a monk from Britain, and he died in the first couple of decades of the 5th century AD. And his view was that humanity was not created in grace. You know, originally I, I spoke about sanctifying grace, uncreated grace, supernatural gifts, preternatural gifts, etc. Pelagius taught that humanity was just created in a natural state not in grace, and that the original sin of Adam and Eve did not impact on them, on their human nature at all. It was just a bad act for which they themselves were personally responsible for. Nothing is passed on to us by way of a, human, a wounded human nature, according to Pelagians. We are all conceived and born with just a natural human nature, um, which is inherently good. What the sin of Adam and Eve is not transmitted to us, it's just a sin, a singular act that sets a bad example. Mm. And that if we, therefore, as parents, educate our children properly, then our children can grow in virtue and, and lead holy lives without the assistance of God, without the assistance of his grace. We can all lead naturally good lives through good education and through um, right example. Now, what does that sound like? Firstly, it's, it's a form of, the, of stoicism, the ancient pagan philosophy that we can be virtuous through our own natural efforts. Secondly, it's what the secular world believes in today. The secular world believes that we can solve all our issues by simply setting good example and being good educators. Just pour more money into education and people will learn what is right and they'll do what is right. It completely negates the fact that we have a human nature that is so prone to sin because of our own wounds within our intellect that is ignorance and malice, excessive self-love and the will. So what Jesus does as saviour, he doesn't restore us to grace through baptism. He doesn't uh, put us back. He doesn't give us the gift of the, of the in life of the Trinity in our souls again. He simply sets a good example for us to follow in counter to Adam's bad example. Right? There's no regeneration. So you don't need baptism. Uh, mm. to regenerate us, to put us back into grace, and you certainly don't need infant baptism. And the Our Father doesn't become a prayer of f f asking for forgiveness of sin. When we say forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. But the Our Father for Pelagius is just an act of humility. Okay, now that's, that's the error of Pelagianism. Um, 
And that's so prevalent in, in the world today and some parts of the church. So who picked up the pen to combat Pelagius was the great St. Augustine of Hippo. And he got to work to develop the whole system of grace and the understanding of, of how we need God in order to be holy. Again, today we have the atheists and new atheists saying we can be good without God. Um, well, that's just, what's your definition of good for a start? And from what we know, of course, from human nature and human behavior, is that we can't really be good at all without God. We can only be good with God's grace. Now, there's another subtle heresy here called semi-plagianism, which is that we can do good works from our own initiative, off our own bat, so to speak. When in actual fact, again, St. Augustine here tells us that we can only do good works in response to God's grace that comes first, and that's called prevenient grace. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Catholics are accused of being Pelagians or semi-Pelagians because we believe in the need for good works to, for salvation. Uh, that's another topic, but we, we certainly believe that, but we don't believe we do those good works from our own back off. We do good works only in response to God's grace, the mm -hmm. actual grace, enlightening our intellect, moving our will that comes first. So mm -hmm. St. Augustine would say our good actions, our good works are actually gifts from God. Mm -hmm. uh, we just simply positively respond freely to God's grace to do the works he inspires us to do. Uh, so that's the era of Pelagianism, and it had to be formally condemned. And um, so St. Augustine did the background work, theological work here, but then you have to have a formal condemnation, and that came with the Council of Carthage in the year 418. And we had Pope Zosimus at the time, um, who ratified this condemnation. And if you give me a moment, I'll just state here what the Council of, of Carthage held, yes, formally please. defining and condemning Pelagians. One, the, that death in Adam is the result of sin. So Pelagius would have taught that death was just a natural ending to the human life. Mm -hmm. when, it, when the church says and reaffirms here that death actually come, comes only as a result of Adam's sin. It wasn't part of the original plan in God's plan. Two, that infants require baptism by reason of their contract in original sin as children of Adam. So, yes, we have baptism. It's necessary for salvation. We baptize infants. Why? Because the church teaches infants have inherited a wounded human nature and they are deprived of sanctifying grace and uncreated grace. And so... Uh, Christ's redemption is not simply setting an alternative good example, but Christ's redemption, his, his work of redemption actually wins for us sanctifying grace to restore us to be children of God, supernatural children of God. And that is to be done at baptism of infants. Hmm. Three, that grace is needed both to know and obey God's commandments. Yes, we can't be good without God. Without me, you can do nothing, as John says, records in his gospel. Um, and we don't just have a natural ability to be good and look at Christ as a good example. We actually need to cling to Christ to rely on his grace to be the good he asks us to be. And finally, that without grace, it is impossible to perform good works. So that's the condemnation of semi-plagians that we don't do good works naturally off our own back, but only in response to God's grace. And this condemnation was reaffirmed centuries later at the Council of Trent um, when condemning, um, of course, mainly Protestantism. But the Council of Trent would say, if anyone shall say that a man once justified can throughout his life avoid all sins, even venial, except by a special privilege of God, as the church believes of the Blessed Virgin Mary, let him be anathema. Mm. So that's the final nail in the Pelagian yes. and semi-Pelagian coffin. 
Excellent. Now, um, you mentioned the the prevenient grace. That, that That's something that's offered to all people all the time. That's something that God is, is constantly trying to do. He's constantly offering his gifts, trying to call us to, to, towards him. Yes? Excellent. Absolutely right. See, God is a good God. Hmm. God wills all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, in contrast, Diction to Calvinism, which teaches that uh, God through Jesus Christ only redeemed the elect, that is a minority of humanity, that God wills the damnation of the reprobate, the majority of humanity. Mm. But no, the Christian God is a God that wills that all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so God is giving grace to all people, whoever they may be, not just Catholics, not just Christians, but to all people constantly to enlighten their intellect, to move their wills, to enable them to do good and avoid evil, to follow the natural law, to be faithful to the law they know, to repent of their sins. Okay, so yes, God moves on all people constantly as a God of love, as a father of all. And if we are not saved, it's not because of God's positive will that I or anyone else be condemned, but it's because we freely did not correspond to God's grace. We said we freely chose to say no to God's grace and to continue on our own path, our own sinful ways. Mm. All right, well, let's move on to the next um, misunderstanding of original sin, which really comes about as a result of the um, Protestant uh, Reformation. Some have called it the Protestant Rebellion, um, particularly around a man named Calvin. Tell us about uh, John Calvin. Yeah, well, Calvin inherited the ideas of Luther. They basically taught something very similar when it came to original sin. So we have two extremes here. We've talked about Pelagianism. Now, Protestantism, classical Protestantism, Luther first and Calvin, they exaggerated the consequences of original sin or the effects of original sin. Um, they taught that grace was an essential part of human nature. Now, I've been saying, as the Catholic Church says, that sanctifying grace is a super added gift. It's not an essential part of our nature. And at, at, at Cal Luther and Calvin taught that because of original sin, we lost something that was an essential part of our nature. And the original sin destroyed ourselves, mm. that we became totally depraved. Now, the Catholic language is that we became wounded. Luther and Calvin taught we became depraved, totally depraved. What did that mean? It meant to them that we, that our intellects did not just simply suffer the wound of ignorance, but that we lost all ability to naturally know truths. Mm. Okay. Uh, our will is not just simply wounded by malice, so it becomes introverted and we engage in excessive self-love. But our will became totally vitiated, destroyed, mm. bonded. We don't have free will. So classical Protestant, Protestantism falls into the era of Islam, which also teaches that we don't have free will. Now we've got the new atheists, uh, particularly Harris in the United States, teaching mm. that we don't have free will. Mm. So the Catholic Church stands alone in teaching that humanity has free will in opposition to Islam, classical Protestantism and new atheism. But we teach as Catholics that in our will we're wounded by malice so that we're loving ourselves above all things. And that can be reversed by God's grace, actual grace. We can love God above all things again. We, can't, we can love our neighbour as ourselves, but only through God's grace. Now, the other consequences of, of that taught by Luther and Calvin is that even with justification, even when, see, because we don't have free will, we are not the ones who say yes to God. We're simply elected. Hmm. We, can't, we are in no position because of our bonded will to say yes or no to God. Hmm. 
It is God who determines the fate of all, either as the elect or the reprobate. We have no say in it. Mm. It just happens that the reprobate are the majority. We simply become enlightened as to our election. Okay, but even when we're justified through faith alone, we're not re regenerated in grace according to classical Protestantism. Mm. Now, the Catholic Church believes that we are regenerated through the waters of baptism, mm. sanctifying grace, the life of the Trinity is restored to us. I mean, we read that in John 14 23 if you love me, my father will love you, and we'll come and make our home in you. That's the regenerated life of uncreated grace. When we read in the letter to, of St. Paul to Titus, talks about the waters of regeneration, mm -hmm. uh, referring to baptism, born again of water and the spirit. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. John 3 3 to 5. Okay, now according to Luther and Calvin, when we're justified, we simply get we're declared to be righteous. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And that's the same for everyone. All right. Mm -hmm. We get covered by Christ's cloak of a cloak of Christ's merits. So that when we die, Christ sees himself covering our sinful, done nature, as Luther would put it. Um, so yeah, no regeneration. This is why I, I also have recently made a presentation on whether there are different levels in heaven. Mm -hmm. And according to Luther and Calvin, there couldn't be because we are all receive the same justification, imputed righteousness of Christ. There's no one who has the ability to earn more gracious merit than anyone else because we don't have a free will. We simply receive Christ's imputed righteousness. So if we all have the same righteousness before the throne of Christ, then how, the, how can there be, be, how can there be anyone in heaven higher than anyone else? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's another talk that we can develop. Mm. Um, yeah. So basically, yeah. And Luther would teach finally, uh, and that we can't do any good actions because we're totally depraved. All our actions are at least venially sinful. Mm. Um, and that see, we grave consequences of original sin, according to Luther and Calvin, exaggerating the consequences of original sin. So that's that that collection of errors. Mm. And of course, if uh, if it's just if it's God who's deciding um, who is elect and who is reprobate, this is where that uh, that doctrine of double predestination comes in, where it's God who decides who goes to hell. Um, and I, I personally, I find this quite an insidious doctrine because it just it doesn't seem to me to be the action of a loving God. Well, look, the new that? atheists are out there saying today that God is a moral monster. Hmm. Well, not the Catholic God, not the Christian God, but the hmm. God of Calvin, I could declare it to be a moral monster. If hmm. he's a God who creates children and then freely, willfully condemns them to hell through no fault of their own. Now, when I was a young father, when I had my first child, I'm talking 20 years ago, I remember once just looking at my son as a child less than one year, one year old in a pram. And I was thinking about my own responsibility as a father to my children, that I have, to raise, I have to raise them for God. I have to help them to get to heaven. Then I imagine myself to be the God of Calvin. So yeah. I had, uh, say I had nine children all up. Yeah. And then I would be, if, as the God of Calvin, I would be arbitrarily deciding for each one of my children, whether they go to heaven or hell through no fault of their own. I would help two of my children, the minority, or three max, to go to heaven, and I would will the majority, six or seven of the others, to hell. Hmm. Now, what type of father would I be? Not if I'm not willing, yeah, if, not, if I'm not willing all my children and assisting all my children to get to heaven, hmm. I would be a very a bad father, an evil father. Well, that's, sorry, but that's basically the God of Calvin who creates individuals and wills that they be condemned to hell through no fault of their own, simply to assert his sovereignty. Mm. 
Mm. And I've been, remember when I was at university chaplaincy, I engaged a young Calvinist fellow, a very nice fellow. And that was his main justification for God doing this, to assert his sovereignty. But God can assert his sovereignty even more effectively by saving people from hell, not by condemning them to hell. Okay. And he works with us freely. If anyone goes to hell, and they do according to the data and scripture, it's through their own fault. They have freely rejected the grace of God. We, despite the fact that we are wounded in the will through malice, we still have a will that can, uh, an intellect that can know the difference between right and wrong. Hmm and know it even more perfectly through revelation and that we have a will that can make a decision for or against God. Now we're assisted with God's grace to know the, what we need to know for salvation and to give us the grace to strengthen us to actually do what we need to do to be saved. Um, and we also have the freedom we have the freedom to say yes to God's grace. We also have the freedom to say no. And if I go to hell, it's because I freely chose to say no. Absolutely. So in the in this version of um, Protestantism, uh, the baptism uh, or justification is simply something that is a statement about the person that is that is untrue. Right? It's it's Christ's righteousness being cloaked over us but we still remain totally depraved and so you know we would even then be in heaven still totally depraved but clothed with a cloak of righteousness but i I thought that nothing unholy could stand before god and surely surely that would also be the case if we were totally depraved right well of course and the fact is is that we are seeing the inherent contradictions Mm. in in the Protestant, classical Protestant position. Now, I emphasize classical Protestant because I don't want to any, anyone to think that all Protestants believe this or think this. Yeah. Uh, they don't. I'm talking about the original founders, the Heresarchs, so to speak, the Luthers, the Calvins, etc. Um, it just goes to, sh- you know, they talk about the sufficiency of Christ's merits and they accuse us of believing Christ's merits to be insufficient. We don't believe Christ's merits to be simply sufficient. We believe them to be infinite and superabundant. And we believe that Christ not only declares us righteous, but when he declares us righteous, it's a statement of truth. He has made us righteous. Hmm. We are restored to the life Adam and Eve had in the garden, the life of grace created and uncreated. And this is why St. Paul says in Titus 3, 5, you are saved by the washing of regeneration, right? That's right. You've got the proper reference there. <laughs> That's Excellent. Correct. Excellent. So what exactly then does baptism do for us? Because we, most of us Catholics know that it uh, takes away original sin, but what else does it do? What, what does it actually, what, what of these original graces does it give back to Thanks. us? Baptism is wonderful in so many ways. Firstly, we receive a seal. We are marked in our souls with an indelible mark that makes us Christian. We are Christed. We are are anointed. So we are become a member of Jesus Christ, a member of his mystical body, the church. That seal remains forever. It can never be taken away by any sin. We also receive sanctifying grace, a creative participation in God's own divine nature. It elevates us. It is the heaven suit we need to be in heaven to see God face to face. We receive the theological, three theological virtues infused, faith, hope, and love to assist us to, to lead, to live out a supernatural life directed towards God, to believe in God, to trust in God, to love God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves. We receive the four moral virtues, temperance, fortitude, uh, prudence, and justice. These to enable us to better live as man on earth. Okay. We all, and we also have the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. So that all these theological and moral virtues that we receive can operate in a 
divine melu, so to speak, the, the oil of the engine to keep the engine parts running smoothly, et cetera, et cetera. So that, they're the wonders of the, the wonderful gifts we receive with baptism. Um, these are planted in us as children, as infants, in, when we receive baptism as infants, as seeds, which are meant to then be cultivated um, when we're educated in the faith by our parents, etc. Of course, then we receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit and added strength with, with confirmation. Now, I just want to read to you uh, what the Council of Trent said here about baptism. Okay. Um, and this was, again, in refutation of the Protestant Reformed position. If anyone denies that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is conferred in baptism, the guilt of original sin is remitted, or even asserts that the whole of that which has the true and proper nature of sin is not taken away, but says that it is only cancelled or not imputed, let him be anathema. So baptism, by infusing sanctifying grace, and I forgot to mention we received the uncreated grace of the life of the Trinity in what I just said a few moments ago. When we receive all these gifts, grace, uncreated, great, uh, created, supernatural virtues, moral virtues, gifts of the Holy Spirit, they're infused into our souls. That's how original sin is washed away. That's how we are forgiven of original sin. And baptism, if we receive it as an adult, uh, we're not only washed away of all the sins, original sin and all our actual sins, but all the punishment due to sin uh, that, uh, you know, we were deserving of because of our sins. So we we as catholics believe that we can we can actually lose our justification through what is called mortal sin so how does mortal sin then affect all of those graces that we receive in baptism uh, we don't get original sin back do we no we don't but we still retain the foams of sin mm -hmm. the wounds that's because of original sin even when we're baptized we still have disordered appetites. We still have concupiscence, disordered desire for pleasure. We still have debility. I should have mentioned these earlier, other consequences of original sin, weakness. Um, we still have the uh, disordered emotions, appetites and desires. They remain. And that's why we have to do penances, fasting, abstinence, self-denials to gain the ascendancy of the will over the flesh, etc. Um, so... So if what we happens in, mortal, in mortal sin? Like we've well, received all those we, all those graces in in baptism, so we're not getting original sin back. But if we commit a mortal sin, what what happens to all the? We lose we sins? lose sanctifying grace. I see. We lose the life of the Trinity in our souls. We lose all our merits. Now we still retain faith and hope. We can lose hope if I despair, and we can lose faith if I commit apostasy. Okay, if I repent of my sin, go to confession, sacramental confession, I'm restored. Okay, I will receive everything back and all my merits, which I had lost, I received back as well. Okay, uh, mortal yes, sin that, is a pretty serious thing, then. Mortal sin is deadly serious. Excuse <laughs> the pun. Indeed. Uh, and again, it must be taught. And St. Mm. John, at the end of his first epistle, Chapter 5 talks about sin that causes death and sin that doesn't cause death. So the, St. John makes it clear in line with Catholic teaching, uh, well, Catholic teaching is in line with St. John, that, you know, there are different degrees of sin. Again, in contrast to the classical Calvinist position, sin is sin, which again is against reason. Um, it's just nonsensical. How could, you know, me stealing five a five cent lolly from a shop equate to murdering the shopkeeper, mm -hmm. right? It's not the same. Um, so yes, we, we have to reinforce again this terminology in education. There is serious, there is mortal sin and we just can't belittle sin and think that, you know, all sins are just piccadillo, mm -hmm. especially sexual sin. I mean, because of the sexual revolution, sexual revolution, one of its most insidious aspects is it's assertion that there are no sexual sins, mm. okay? And um, that's permeated our psyche as well as the whole milieu of our culture. Mm. 
and has led to a great deal of human misery uh, with addiction to sex and pornography and you know all the stuff that was part of my life so yeah I, I can I'm here as a man speaking from experience that yes they are sinful they're addictive and they're harmful to each mm. and every one of us yeah mm. absolutely now there's uh, one last error that uh, we've uh, touched on that we should uh, probably talk a little bit more about and that is this heresy of polygenism could you mm. define that for us please robert your yeah, polygenism means multiple origins now mm. there are modernist catholics and there are atheistic new atheistic and all types of secular mindsets out there that of course totally dismiss uh the biblical account of Adam and Eve and original sin. The idea that the whole of humanity can somehow be derived from one set of parents for them is nonsensical, though there is scientific and genetic evidence strongly asserting that that is the case. The human family does have origins of one set of parents somewhere in Africa, um, you know, mitochondrial Eve and African Adam, and that's based in good scientific good science, good genetics, etc. But for those who see and dismiss the biblical account of Adam and Eve and original sin, they believe that the human family is a collection of individuals with multiple origins. Mm. And again, they would have similar views to the Stoists and to the Pelagians that human nature is naturally inclined to good. The noble savage concept, we're naturally inclined to good and that we um, simply do evil things because we get influenced by bad example. Um, and that if we have good example and good education, we can be naturally good. Well, um, the church has formally condemned this and did it in 1950 in the encyclical Humanite um, Generous by Pius XII. And in that, that encyclical said the following, for the faithful cannot embrace that opinion which maintains that either after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their origin through natural generation from him, as from the first parent of all, or that Adam represents a certain number of first parents. Now, just stop there for a moment. I personally encountered that position expressed by Catholics um, in education, okay, that you know, humanity has multiple origins uh, from a number of first parents. Now, the um, Pope Pius XII continued on to say, now it is in no way apparent how such an opinion can be reconciled with that which the sources of revealed truth and the documents of the teaching authority of the church propose with regard to original sin. So we are not, we cannot be polygenists. We, can, we need to believe as mm. constant church teaching and dogmatic teaching that, that there was an original sin. Council of Trent reaffirmed that. Uh, caught, uh, that was committed by original parents known to us as Adam and Eve and their original sin impacted on them and on their all subsequent children, all generations from then until now and that we inherit that original sin and that we are triumphant over that original sin through the grace of Christ applied to us first in baptism and then maintained through the sacraments of penance and the Eucharist, etc., etc. Yeah, because some take the, uh, the the sort of the mitochondrial um, research that uh, that's being done at the moment and they and they will say, well, you know, mitochondrial Adam and Eve are separated in time and space currently, but we think that it was probably a, a, whole, a, a small group of tribes from which um, we, we all came. But of course, um, the, the, the strong possibility is right there in the genetics that it may not have been a, a small group of tribes and that it could have in fact been a single uh, man and a single woman. And that's inherent in the, in the, in the scientific theory. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, some people have taken these uh, sort of a more secular views um, to heart and said, well, it's probably the other way. But, uh, but in fact, the theory does lend itself to, um, to the interpretation that the church teaches. Well, I'll just make one brief comment to finish off. If humanity has its origins in a small you know, collection of tribes or 
where did those small collection of tribes have their origin from? Mm. Okay. Absolutely. Yep. Well, we are out of time. Uh, it has flown by, Robert. Uh, it's been an absolute joy uh, to talk with you. It is an honor to learn from you. And uh, it is a great privilege to then be able to share these conversations with others. So thank you once again for giving us your time this evening. No, thank you, Matthew. And thank you to Perusia to support this work, to support the book, Defend the Faith, and to support Catholic teaching, Catholic dogma in general. Thank you very much. And God bless you all. No problem. Thank you again. And uh, of course, the book is Defend the Faith. It's available from the Perusia store and be sure to join it, get a copy, read it, and then join us next month as we talk about justification and salvation. So that's enough from us tonight. So thank you very much for listening to this recording and farewell and God bless. Thanks for listening to the Perusia podcast. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please share with your family and friends. And for more information about everything Perusia, please visit our website at perusiamedia.com.